Please be seated. Good morning, church. I ask you not to turn initially in your Bibles, but to the Bible readings that are printed for you in page, on page 8, because we're, having, we're reading several verses today, because we're beginning a new series in the Minor Prophets. There are 12 Minor Prophets. We'll study uh, from six of them today. That'll leave six next week. We'll be done. Not so easy. It'll take us a couple of years, maybe. But we are going to read from to six different prophets in this initial reading, and then uh, I'll point you to where you could read further. But I want to give you an overview of these 12 small books. That's why they're called minor prophets as opposed to major prophets, not because they're not important, but because they are not as large as Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel. Those those books are much larger. There are only 67, there are 67 chapters in the Minor Prophets. There are 66 chapters just in the book of Isaiah. So these are 12 smallish books, but they cover a long period of biblical history. And uh, I don't expect you to remember these dates or this span, but I want to make it manageable for you, and I think you'll become more confident in it as we study these books. But basically, these 12 books cover 500 years of biblical history, from roughly the 800s, 800 years before Christ to, or 900 years before Christ to 400 years before Christ. And there's a lot happening with Israel and Judah in that time. And I want to illustrate it for you, see if I can make it a little more accessible for you. And so, uh, you know, David had, uh, David, King David had brought the kingdom together. It was a mighty kingdom. And then Solomon uh, brought in a bunch of foreign wives and they taught their children to follow Canaanite gods. And God said, because your heart is divided from me, I'm going to divide your nation after you. And the nation was divided north and south, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. It'd be something like this. Let's say that uh, after the civil war, the, the nation divided, remained divided for 200 years north and south. Except that it wasn't at the Mason-Dixon line. Let's say that there were, that there were uh, 48 states in the north, and the, the two southern tribes were Tennessee and Alabama. We'd have to learn to get along. Tennessee and Alabama, just two states. And then suppose that 200 years later, a foreign nation came in and gathered up those 48 states and took them and dispersed them throughout the world. And there were just those two states, just Tennessee and Alabama left. And then another couple of hundred years, and those states, Tennessee and Alabama, were captured by Canada and taken up and, 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 and kept in exile for 70 years. And then at the end of 70 years, we were able to meander back to Tennessee and Alabama. And then 400 years later, Jesus comes the first time. Now, why did all of that happen to those nations, to the ten tribes of the north and two tribes of the south? Because God was constantly pursuing them and their wayward hearts. And the minor prophets record that persistent grace, that, uh, that hard-headed dogged determination of God 
to bring his Messiah through these people to save them and us. That's what I want us to study. And I picked the minor prophets. I love the minor prophets for many reasons. But it's in the minor prophets that I really believe for the first time the gospel of grace. Not just the gospel of grace in the Old Testament, but the gospel of grace in the Bible of all places in these 12 little books that are so clean in most of your Bibles because we don't touch them much. 12 little books that will expose to us major truths regarding God's grace. Now, let me read, read with me these passages from page 8 and various minor prophets, <clears throat> beginning in Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. O oh Lord, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your gospel as it is contained in these 12 brief but brilliant books of grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> a few years ago I read a book by Eric Bleem called Fearless. It's a story of Adam Brown who was a member of the elite Team 6 in the Navy, the SEAL Team 6. 2010, uh, Adam Brown gave his life for this country and in a, in a brave, heroic act, taking on the Taliban terrorists in Afghanistan. But Adam Brown didn't start out so great in life. He lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas. His parents were good parents. They were not Christians for the early years of his life, but because of his addictions to cocaine and to meth and to alcohol and violence and irresponsibility and disruption that he caused and their absolute uh, despondency over it, his prodigality, his, his running after these things drove them to the end of themselves and they eventually came to Christ. But by then they were worn out and had given up on their son. And then into Adam's life, the Lord brought a woman named Kelly Tippy. Kelly had a similar 
problem with uh, substance abuse in her past. The Lord had delivered her, and, and uh, she had uh, a burden for Adam. They fell in love. But he had trouble staying away from those demons that controlled him. Uh, she tried to pursue him. She tried to love him. She tried to help him. Uh, they knew they were in love. They wanted to get married. But two days after they attended a friend's wedding, uh, Adam went back into his habits and, and uh, fell off the wagon, went into the crack bars and crack houses and, and lived there for several days after stealing his father, one of his father's work trucks with a very expensive load of tools. And he, he hopped from one uh, crack house to another to another. Kelly Tippy decided she was going to find him. She went to the east side of, of Hot Springs, which was a, a rough place, at least at the time, and she went from one house to the other to the other, boldly, bravely, crazily looking for him. In fact, his parents said, give it up, Kelly. You're a nice girl. You've got your whole life ahead of you. He's just going to ruin your life. Give it up. When she was driving from one crack house to another, she saw his dad's truck, and, she, and then a, a pursuit ensued. She started chasing him on the highway. She, she ran him down, and when he saw he couldn't elude her, he drove off to the side, and in, a, in, a, in a, a cloud of dust, he jumped out of the truck and ran into the woods. There's a drug dealer in the truck with him. Kelly Tippy got out of her car. She went up to the drug dealer, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, threw him in her car and said, you're going to help me find him. We're going to go to every crack house in this place until we find him. She said nine months of patience, encouragement, and empathy left me crazy angry. Crazy angry. Why was she crazy with anger? Because she was crazy with love. If the theme of Revelation was Jesus wins, the theme of these minor prophets could be crazy love. The crazy love of God who refuses to give up, but pursues and will pursue until his, all of his redemptive plan is accomplished. And so every one of these minor prophets will call us to something very simple, walk with the Lord. Love the Lord your God, walk with Him. Live in sweet obedience to Him. Why? Because He loves you. And the whole of the minor prophets make that point of the crazy love of God this way. The explanation of, how, of why His love is crazy is because we are His possession. The display of His crazy love for us is His pursuit. And the manifestation of the power of His crazy love is ultimately in the gift of Jesus Christ and the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in sealing that work to us. But I want to survey these, these uh, prophets, just six of them, <clears throat> in order to make 
these points and to whet your appetite for what the Lord has to teach us in these books. And the, the first point I said was that, that, um, that the explanation of why God is, His love could be called crazy is, is that we are His possession. We belong to Him. Well, you say, I, I don't belong to Him because I haven't given my life to Him yet. Oh, yes, you do belong to Him because He created you. The Bible makes it clear, Genesis, that God created every human being, created all there is, and He created man, male and female, in His own image. We're born as His possession. And then furthermore, He did come after a group of people, even after we rebelled against Him as humanity. He came after a group of people, uh, starting with Abraham, and uh, He announced this purpose in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to bring my Messiah through the seed of the woman. And then he, he reiterated that promise to Abraham. And he said, you're going to be my possession. And through your seed, I will bring, through your offspring, I will bring my Messiah. And a battle ensued. As soon as God made that promise back in Genesis 3.15, the devil said, oh, no, you're not. You're not going to bring the Messiah. I'm going to do my best to stop him. And that's the whole story of the Bible. It's the devil trying to stop the forward progress of redemption and God battling, plowing right through it. And so God says, I have chosen Yes, you have rebelled against me. I made you in my image. I've given you everything. You rebelled against me, but I have chosen to save you. And from the foundation of the world, he says, I have chosen a people for myself. You see that in the first passage we read? Why is God so angry that people are in rebellion against him and dehumanizing their lives? Because he says, you only have I known or chosen you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. God could have chosen any creature. He could have chosen a dog, a cat, an orangutan. He could have chosen trees. And it would have been a lot less trouble. But God chose us. He chose human beings who would sin. And by choosing us, by deciding these are going to be my people, he put a death sentence on himself. The only way they can be my people is that if I fulfill their righteousness, if I bring the iniquity that is due to them on myself and punish it in myself. God chose you and me to save us, not because we are most numerous, not because we should be on His first team, not because we're respectable people. The Bible says He chose us in love, chose to save, but we left Him, and we continue to leave Him. We left Him. He chose us. We are His possession, but we are constantly leaving Him. There's another prophet we won't read from today, but Hosea. And Hosea is a, is, a, is a graphic parable, a graphic story of the way God continues to pursue people whose hearts are constantly turning against the God of grace. 
In that little book, God tells Hosea the prophet, I want you to go, I want you to go into the red light district and I want you to choose a prostitute named Gomer and I want you to marry her. Hosea says, I don't think I heard something right. No, that's what I said. I want you to marry that prostitute. I want you to have children by her. I want you to love her, take care of her, protect her. And he did. And then early on in the book, it says because Gomer got bored with that life, because she liked the material blessings and the attention of the previous life, she turned her back on that loving husband and went back into that life of prostitution and became, traffic, became trafficked, became a slave. And Hosea must have thought, well, surely I've done enough, Lord. And the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to go and buy her back. She's going to go on the slave block. I want you to buy her back. I want you to love her again. Can you imagine anything more infuriating than to to pour your love on someone who had been mistreated like that and then for her to turn her back on you and to go right back into it and then to have to go and buy her back and love her just the same again. Can you imagine anything worse? That's just unreasonable, isn't it? Who would require Hosea to do such a thing? Only a God who did such a thing and only a God who continues to do such a thing. Because he says whenever we sin, not just before we were Christians, but when we continue to sin, it is like committing adultery against a loving husband. It's even worse though. It's like committing adultery against a loving God who spilled the blood of his son for us. And God gets crazy angry in these books when his people turn like that because he knows what this sin does to them, to us. Just think about what happens when we break any of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. What happens when we have other gods before God? We become like those lesser gods. What happens when we make idols, when we, when we, when we turn our heart's affections away from a God who truly loves us and something else becomes an idol to us? That idol is never satisfied. What happens when we profane the name of God? We become profane. What happens when we break the Sabbath? We wear out our bodies. What happens when we disrespect authority? We become disrespected. What happens when we murder, literally or metaphorically? We become like animals. What happens when we commit adultery, all kinds of entanglements and shame and complications and generations of troubles? What happens when we steal? Again, we lower ourselves to become like orphans. What, what is it when we, when we lie? We become less than the image of God and we mistreat other people and it becomes a complicated mess. And what happens when we covet? We're overcome with bitterness. God is angry when we sin, not because He's so prudish, but because He loves us and He loves the image in us. And he knows that life is most beautiful and we flourish only when we live in a loving relationship, a loving, obedient relationship in response to his grace. 
Why doesn't he just give up on us? He doesn't. I don't know why he doesn't give up on us. But what we know is he doesn't. And so the, the Bible also, these minor prophets also teach us that, that though we are his possession and we make him crazy angry at times, his crazy love is demonstrated by his constant pursuit of us. That's the story of, that's the story of Joel, for instance. Joel was one of those prophets to the northern tribes, to the two southern, I mean southern tribes, the two southern tribes. And uh, even though God had called after his people time and again, worship me, things will go well with you if you worship me. They continue to turn to, to idols and gods that are material things that, are, that are more, seem to be more secure. And uh, the people of Joel's day were particularly smug and secure in their economy. Everything was secure for them. Their crops were coming in as scheduled. They were living fine. They really didn't need God. In fact, they needed to hedge their bets and uh, do more of what they thought had brought them success. So God said, these are desperate times. They need desperate measures. So he sent a locust plague. Now, locusts are big grasshoppers. And uh, we don't have locust plagues uh, in our country. Very rarely, very small parts of the country. But they're common in Australia. Been common in, in the east, in West Africa. Just a few years ago, there was a, there was a locust plague in, in West Africa. And, and you say, well, what harm could a, could, a, could a grasshopper do? Well, they have a ravenous appetite. And I said they're big. So if you, get, um, if you get several million of them together, they do a lot of harm. An average locust plague is 60 square miles. 60 square miles of locusts weigh 10,000 tons. So these people who had wandered away from God, God drops a hammer of locusts on their crops and wipes out their crops. Why would God be so cruel, you say? It's not He that's being cruel. These are desperate times. These were desperate times. And God said, my love has made me crazy for you. I've got to take away this idol. It is a severe mercy to draw you back to myself. There's another story of pursuit. It's found in the book of Jonah. It's in the book of Jonah that God got a hold of me with the gospel of grace. But that's for another time. The book of Jonah is a, an amazing story of, of, uh, of Jonah, a, a prophet to the north, the northern ten tribes that had been abused and trampled on by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians, it's, it's not just any warfare. The Assyrians were absolutely animal-like. They impaled people on sticks. They burned them alive. They skinned them alive. They terrorized and so it stands to reason that Jonah would not want the Assyrians to be saved. But, but when the message came to Jonah, I want you to go to Assyria. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to the biggest city in Assyria, and I want you to preach judgment against them. You would think Jonah would have taken up that call. I would love to preach judgment on them. I would love to tell them. I would love to go up there with your protection and tell them that they're all going to hell. 
But Jonah did not want to go. Why did he not want to go and preach warning to Nineveh? Well, he tried to run away from God. In fact, he told those Phoenician sailors, if you're going to be saved in this storm, God threw a storm on the, on the sea while he was trying to flee from God, and he was hiding in the hull of the boat. He said, there's only one way you're going to survive. Throw me overboard. Just kill me. He wanted to commit suicide to keep from doing what God called him to do. What did God do? He sent a whale. He sent a fish to swallow him up, not as a judgment, but to save him. He spits him out on shore. And God becomes more specific with the message that he gives to Jonah. He says, now, this is what I want you to do. This is specifically what I want you to preach. I want you to go throughout the whole city and preach 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days. And Jonah must have thought, now that will preach. 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. I can wait 40 days. And Jonah starts preaching. And God did the worst thing imaginable in Jonah's mind. He saved everybody in that city. In fact, they repented so thoroughly, not only did the king repent, but they draped the cattle, the animals, in, in garments of mourning. And Jonah went out on the east side of the city and he, and he pouted and he cursed. And God asked him, why are you so angry. And Jonah said these words that I've put here in your bulletin, verse 8, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Because, he says, you can hear him saying it through gritted teeth, because I knew as soon as I preached to these people, you would save them because you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He quoted Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, it's the spine of the Bible when God says, this is who I am in my essence. I am a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy, forgive sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Joel quoted the same passage. Right after he quotes, the day of the Lord is coming, the locust plague is coming, he says in chapter 2, verse 13, but God is merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin. God pursues relentlessly those who turn their backs even egregiously against His grace. That's power. And that power, that power to make us holy people. That power to continue to pursue us against the kingdom of darkness, to pursue us in spite of ourselves, that power is called grace. And it's personified in Jesus Christ. And John said, again, quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He incarnated that grace. And then in Acts chapter 2, we read that Joel too is fulfilled. That the only way that we can be joined to that Savior. The only way our sins can be forgiven, the only way we can live a, a new life 
is by the Holy Spirit poured out on us just as Joel promised. How is God going to make us? What kind of, what, what, what does that power do for us? Well, look again at these last two passages I've given to you in your bulletin, page 8. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil. How in the world is God going to take away our judgments? How in the world is He going to lift up our sin from us as He promises implicitly in Exodus 34, 6, and 7? I will bear away your iniquities. It's by the giving of that great scapegoat, the last lamb, even Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life in our place, who physically walked all of the places where Israel had been and Judah had been and lived obediently in their place and lived obediently in our place, fulfilling all of the Ten Commandments and then dying in our place in judgment for the sins that we have committed and then pouring out His Spirit in order to take that righteousness and put it on us in exchange for our sin. There's only one way to get that. It's to ask for it. And when you ask for it, you don't quit asking for Him to make you like Himself. And the proof that this new grace lives in you will be found as Micah describes it in verse, chapter 6, verse 8, you will be one who asks, what am I to do? What is the good I am supposed to do? And the Lord will answer, it's to do justice. It's to love kindness. It's to walk humbly with your God. It's to stand for everything that I stand for. It's to stand up for the vulnerable. It is to come to the aid of the weak. It is to stand on righteousness no matter what it costs you. That's justice. It's to practice loving kindness, which is that crazy love. It's to show people love that don't deserve it. It is to keep loving them, to keep pursuing them, keep showing mercy to them just as God does to you and me. And it's to live humbly with your God. Which is to say with the publican, have mercy on me. I'm not looking at other people. I'm not comparing, contrasting myself. I'm not going to look down on them and judge them. I'm not going to, to exclude them. I'm not going to, 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 to uh, create my own private friendship of people who are like me and, and make me comfortable. No, I'm going to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to walk humbly with my God. And the only way to do that is to get a hold of this crazy love, realizing you are His possession. He's pursued you at the price of His own Son. And He's given you all the power needful for life and godliness. That day that Kelly Tippy chased Adam Brown and he ran off the road and then he ran into the woods. Adam Brown was hiding in the woods watching as to his horror 
Kelly pulled that drug dealer out of the truck and put him in her car. He was panicked. That's a bad man. He could kill her. He could abuse her. He could hurt her. Why is she taking that danger into... And then he realized, I've done this to her. My life is not only causing me danger, making me miserable. I'm doing this to other people. I, I could be responsible for her death or abuse. Later that night, he worked up the nerve and he called Kelly. He started out this way. Kelly, I am a loser. She didn't disagree. Would you please forgive me? I love you. Long silence. And then Kelly said, the unthinkable, I forgive you. Even though you are a loser, I forgive you. And the Lord has not released me from pursuing you. I love you too. And then he said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And he said, I will become a Navy SEAL. And she said, you will live by different rules. Crazy, isn't it? Much ill-advised to let your daughter do such a thing. And maybe God should be given different advice too. That's exactly what he does with us. The Navy's possessive rules, Kelly's pursuing love, and the power of the gospel to transform his heart and mind and their lives together, particularly through their little local church, resulted in creating a man who was passionate for justice and loving kindness for his family and for his nation and was made powerful enough to lay his life down in sacrifice. Where did he learn such crazy love? Except from the same Savior who laid his life down for us and continues to bring the story of his blood and his body to us. He continues to come near to us, to pursue us, and say, no matter where you've failed, no matter how long you've been in the far country, no matter what you've done against me, no matter how many times you've fallen back to the besetting sin, no matter how ornery and, and stubborn and pig-headed you've been at resisting my free offer of grace, today is the day that I have come near to you my arms are open wide, and I say to you, come taste and come drink deeply at the wells of my grace because I'm crazy 
about you.